0: mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. By way of introductions this morning, uh, I am actually going to read the very next Psalm 112. It seems that there is scholarly consensus that Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are meant to be read together in tandem with one another. Some have even given them the names, the twin psalms. I, I believe that is because of three dominant reasons. The first is they start with the exact same refrain, praise the Lord. Second, they are both what are called acrostic poems, which means that each line of the poem starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet something I had to uh, learn in seminary but um, finally and possibly the most convincing is that they are theologically and thematically connected by the call to wisdom and the fear of the Lord for Psalm 111 that is in verse 10 and then Psalm 12 verse 1 connects it and then counts it out the rest of the nine verses listen to psalm 112 praise the lord blessed is the man who fears the lord who greatly delights in his commandments his offspring will be mighty in the land the generation of the upright will be blessed wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever light dawns in the darkness for the upright He is gracious and merciful and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Hearing them together, then, you can hear why they are called twin psalms. Psalm 111 describes God and his wonderful works. And then Psalm 12 portrays the man of God who observes his ways and is blessed and a blessing as a result. And the question before us all, the question we constantly ask of life in each season of life is simply, well, how can that be true of me? How can I receive such wonderful blessings? How can Psalm 112 be the reality of my life? And the answer to that lies in our passage this morning. You must first, foremost, praise and fear God's great and glorious name. It is the foundation of the Christian life. It is the beginning and central anchor of our existence. Psalm 111 teaches us that the revelation of God's nature through his works and his laws beckons us. Demands us, calls us, summons us to praise and fear his great name. Let me say that again. Psalm 111 teaches us that the revelation of God's nature through his works and through his laws beckons us to praise his great and glorious name. Let's take a look now at how that shows itself in our passage the first thing we are met with in verse one is an announcement and a call to praise god this is not a generic recommendation but it's actually an imperative this is a command for god's people and the psalmist had a personal response to this command a a resolved commitment to thank and praise god both privately with his whole heart and corporately amongst God's people by saying, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. I want us to notice both are important and vital. They go hand in hand. If you privately praise God, it naturally lends itself to being accompanied with the praise of God amongst the community of God and vice versa. And notice there's, there's a teeter-tottering effect. If, if your heart is full of praise, it will enliven the company of praise and vice versa. When you come in the company of praise, it enlivens and fills your heart and they work together. But I also wanna notice an implication This is cause for concern if we have one without the other. If that is the case, it actually questions the validity of the private or corporate praise we offer. I would even submit that when we have one without the other, it reveals who we praise all along, me, myself, and I. If we praise God privately and not corporate, We praise God for how it makes us feel and only when it benefits us. However, if we praise God corporately only, it is because it, well, frankly, it makes us look good in front of other people. Went to church, checked that one off the box. Good Christian. Both, both kinds of devotion will flicker in storms if you have one without the other because neither, give themselves wholly to the fear of the Lord. But for what exactly is the psalmist praising and thanking God for? It is one of the dominant themes running throughout the psalms, this psalm. It is God's works and his laws. The psalmist believes it is reason enough to praise God. In the ESV, the word work is explicitly stated in Psalm 111 five times and implied two to four others. That is nearly every verse of this psalm is about what God does. The works of God in Psalm 11 can be divided largely into two categories, which will function as our first two points this morning. First, God's work of creation and providence in verses 2 and 3. And then secondly, God's work of salvation in verses 4 to 9. To our first point, praise is God's exclusive right as creator and sustainer. The word for work in verse 2 is one of the most commonly associated with God's work of creation. And God's work of creation testifies to his existence and should cause us to praise him. And everyone actually, believe it or not, knows this. This is what the larger catechism is asking and answering in question two. It asks this, how does it appear that there is a God? And then they answer, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a god think about the vast strength of god's power made evident in everything he created the things plainly that that plainly declare his praiseworthy existence mountains stars planets solar systems the ocean mariana's trench Rainforests, tsunamis, hurricanes, gravity, ants, DNA, microorganisms, the eyeball, taste buds, feelings and emotions. Creation testifies to the powerful self-existent God who does great work that we are dependent upon. And that should cause, and that alone, should cause us to praise and thank Him for His creative work. The thing I find most fascinating in creation is, is weird, maybe, but it is it's actually human consciousness. I, I think it is so puzzling, yet simultaneously, simultaneously wondering that it keeps me coming back to it over and over again. The idea that, just bear with me for a second, our thoughts like our rationale, perception of the world, is uniquely, entirely unique to ourselves. I mean, yeah, we share common experiences and so forth, but I am thinking, feeling, perceiving right now, as you are. And they aren't being doubled in somebody else's body around the world nor were they by somebody in the past. Like, it's not a microchip in our brain that, you know, just gets taken in and out upon life. I mean, that's really weird. But then let's push that out further for a second. In eternity, you will consciously worship God. Yet glorified, hopefully refined and better, but you, you how, how you think, perceive, will be sanctified fully, but you will stand before the Lord of glory. You will behold him. You will worship him. I mean, that, that's incredible. And the same could be said for those who will not bow their knee. They will consciously enter eternal damnation and they will be aware of that reality forever. I mean, think about that That as weird, but that mind-boggling reality is is often how the Bible speaks to creation. It is a mind-boggling reality and hence it's praiseworthy reality points to the infinite wisdom and power of God. Remember the book of Job and his plight? When he finally gets a word in edgewise and asks God, Hey, uh, what happened here? Remember what God speaks back to him? He answers a four-chapter discourse on creation. Job, were you there? Job, do you know how this works? Job, do you even get this? that is because creation testifies to the powerful self-existent god who does great work and it's worthy of all our praise however that that dependence is the built-in logical and hence praiseworthy deduction of creation that both modernity and postmodernity have failed to comprehend they are following the pattern of Romans 1 and suppressing the plain truth about God by denying reality. We should not be surprised or caught off guard by our culture's inability to see plainly what God is up to. It is just another form of Romans 1 repeated since the fall. So what do we do? We preach the gospel. We call the world to repentance. And we praise God. Because he ordered and created a good world. Not only does he create, though. The biblical revelation teaches that God sustains what he created. In theological jargon, we call this providence. And this is what the word work in verse 3 is most commonly associated. R.C. Sproul became well-known for a line he had on Providence when he would say, there is not a maverick molecule on the planet. God's work of sustaining his creation is so vitally important that if he stopped for one nanosecond, we would be done faster than we could bleak. Everything would be Undone. Not only is it sustained, though, and upheld, but creation is brought to its proper destination. This is what the larger catechism answers to question 18. What are God's works of providence? And they answer this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures ordering them and all their actions to his own glory because of this mysterious and complicated feat the psalmist deems it as another reason to praise god god's good sustaining work of creation and providence show his worthiness to be praised in fact it shows his exclusive right to it, for there is no one else who created and governs the cosmos. Thankfully for his people, though, he is known more to them than creator and sustainer. He makes himself personally known to them in a unique way as Savior. Therefore, praise is the proper and perpetual response to God's work of salvation. Verse 4 to 9 shift from creation to providence and address God's work of salvation, which is made evident by the subject matter. Not only that, but like in verses 2 and 3, the word for work in verse 4 signals us to salvation because it's the word most commonly associated and used for God's work of salvation, mainly the deliverance of his people from Egypt through the wonders he performed in the plagues. Verse 4 says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Now let's pause there for a second and think about the Exodus salvation. God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his people would inherit the land he was sojourning after being slaves for 400 years. And that time had now come. Now wonder after wonder was brought forth down upon Egypt, while Israel in Goshen was spared. The Nile was turned to blood, frogs, gnats, biting flies. Egypt's livestock was killed, boils, hail, locusts. Then the lights went out and darkness covered their land. But God paused right before he put the final nail in Egypt's coffin and he caused his mighty works to be remembered. He memorializes all of it in the Exodus 12 encounter with the Passover. And it was so as to say that what he was doing would have a lasting impact upon the nation. And it was the hallmark experience for God's people. The exodus was their true experience. It was what God did in history for his people. And it will be remembered because God instituted it. And its worthiness of praise never dims. Salvation is always significant and grounds for praise. Amen. He not only memorialized it with Egypt, After with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, though, he also did it with true Israel in the New Covenant. Every time we drink the cup and eat the bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim God's great and wondrous work of salvation. Now we celebrate the greater and permanent salvation that Egypt was only a shadow. He has provided us with not just food along the journey, but eternal manna brought about by the covenant enacted on better promises. We have been brought to heavenly Zion where we will never be exiled because the son received the covenant curses on our behalf. His precepts are established forever, but they are no longer written on tablets of stone. They are written on our hearts. Brothers and sisters, praise God. And the praise of God is the proper and perpetual response to his work of salvation. Because if we have that, we have everything we need. No matter what comes our way, whether financial or relational issues, failing health, a job that isn't quite living up to what we'd hoped, family members or loved ones that it's kind of tense, whatever it may be. And that isn't to say those things are trivial either, but the people of God always have an abundant reason to praise him because they have salvation. Every other blessing in this life is just a bonus. The psalmist doesn't just stop at the great and wondrous work of salvation. The psalmist recounts God's gracious and sustaining action towards his people after Egypt as well. Verse 5 and 6 give us a picture of God providing for Israel's need along their journey and his subjugation of the land. Verses 7 and 8 recall Sinai's revelation of the law and the people living on accordingly on their pilgrimage and in the, in the land. Then verse, the first two lines of verse 9 give us a nice parallel statement to verse 4, echoing and framing this salvation section. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. If I can backtrack for a moment, One thing probably needs clarification in this section. The line, he remembers his covenant forever, can seem like a a rather odd action for God, right? Like God remembering as if he could forget or something. And no, God doesn't suffer from short-term memory loss. It is actually the way of describing the time he is ready to act on behalf of the promises of the covenant Exodus 2.24 uses the same language to describe God's readiness to act before he appears to Moses and brought about the plagues of Egypt. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross said to remember a covenant means to act on the basis of the covenant stipulations and promises. He remembers because he never forgets. And the covenant promises, more than likely being referred to here in this place, is what he swore to Abraham in Genesis 15. He alone went through the animals that day. Abraham was asleep, but God swore a promise to him. But there's one thing we need to finally ask ourselves, isn't there? How does this materialize into our lives? How do we appropriately praise God with the entirety of our being, with our whole heart, as the psalmist does? I think it comes down to one phrase, and the psalmist call for wisdom, the fear of the Lord. This is our final and third point. Praise flows from fear of the Lord and directs our paths forward this is rather important in our day and age because fear of the lord has fallen on hard times am i right fear god nah jesus is my homeboy could i I, anyway fear of the lord though is much more than just not making a silly t-shirt and it And it isn't associated with Friday the 13th kind of fear either. We're not talking about Halloween. Yet, there truly is a terrifying element to God. Make no mistake about it. If we think about many of the biblical encounters man has with God, they're terrifying. Sinai, Isaiah in the throne room, John before the risen and glorified Lord, they are all terrified and undone by his majesty. And this is exactly what the last verse of verse 9 is spelling out to us. Holy and awesome is his name. You could translate it properly. Holy and terrifying is his name. And that would not be a stretch. That is a right translation. Yet, to his people. When this is understood along God's character, fear is properly understood as not just terrifying, but it forms in our hearts a humble submission and reverential awe and honor to God's superiority and greatness because he calls us to himself. And the nature of God revealed through creation, providence, and salvation is good. Look at the different ways the psalmist speaks of God's character. Eternally righteous in verse 3. In verse 4, he's gracious and merciful. In verse 5, he's faithful to his word. Verse 6, he's powerful beyond nations. Verse seven, he gives faithful, just and trustworthy laws. Verse nine, he is holy and awesome. The revelation of God through his works and laws shows us that we fear a God who is good and beautiful and lovely. He is magnificent to behold. The fear of the Lord anchors our praise and directs our paths i think fear of the lord i think one of the reasons why fear of the lord is intricately linked with praise is because it distinguishes true praise from flattery or like mark was talking about earlier just giving superficial lip service kind of praise for some reason in our culture We think that we can honor and praise a king without submitting to his ways. I'm not talking about perfectionism here. But in any kingdom, even God's, that is ground for punishment. We must realize obedience, praise, they go together. Maybe I can illustrate this last point and bring this sermon to a close with a story. When my wife was in college, she had a class where she was paired up with a blind couple to help them with a few day-to-day tasks every now and then. The man went blind medically, but was born and lived in poverty his whole life and faced quite an enormous amount of struggles throughout his life. The woman was shot in the face and left to take care of her children on her own. Yet despite all of their misfortune, they, they would be eating in Sizzler, get starting talking about God. And lo and behold, they would throw up their hands and with tears on their face, praise God right then and there. And this had a profound impact on my wife. But why would they do that? Because they feared God above all else. And their eyes were fixed on him as the creator, sustainer, and savior of their lives. With salvation, they both realized they had everything they needed. Psalm 112 was their reality, even though life on this earth was not that pleasant for them. They had all they needed. Their priorities were in alignment because they saw God as creator. They saw God as providentially sustaining his creation and everything they had was due him. They could not will their own existence. It reminds us of that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And this is what the psalmist is doing for us, reminding us about the grandeur of God through his works of creation, providence, and salvation, which give us eternal reasons to sing his praises. We can rejoice with all of our hearts, along with the psalmist, because the revelation of God's good nature through his works and laws, beckons us to praise and fear his great name. Let's pray. God, we praise you for you are good.